0: Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to the CBS Travel Hour with Peter Greenberg. He's America's most recognized and respected frontline travel news journalist. And in this podcast, Peter Greenberg holds in-depth interviews with travel industry insiders, giving listeners practical news they can use on topics ranging from the shrinking carry-on luggage allowances to traveling through the Middle East. This is the CBS Travel Hour with Peter Greenberg.
1: And welcome aboard another edition of the CBS Radio Travel Hour. I'm Peter Greenberg, travel editor for CBS News. Some extended conversations with the leaders of the industry. Joining me today, the chairman of Rocco Forte Hotels, Sir Rocco Forte. Sir Rocco, welcome to the show. Nice to be here. You know, when I talk about hospitality, uh, and I go back, of course, to the days of your father, Uh, The whole idea of a family-run hospitality company, we don't see that very much anymore. Um, In in a world of of, uh, mergers and consolidations and sometimes failures, there's branding. There's no doubt about that. There's branding everywhere. But I think we've lost, in many cases, the art of hospitality.
2: Yes, well, I think there are uh, are obviously a lot of uh, very uh, small enterprises, true family enterprises, individual hotels which are owned by families which have been in the family for a long time. And this started as a family, the Blaton family built this hotel for the World Fair in 1958. but, I mean, with this huge consolidation you know, that's going on, if you think of the Marriott Taker take of Star with the 30, I don't know, 35 different brands. Yeah, but you know what, that, 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 brings, it, that and,
1: brings up an interesting question, because if I stop somebody today from Marriott, and maybe you've done the same yeah. thing, I think it's now down to 32 brands. And I say to them, yeah. how many brands do you have? They'll say, 32. I'll say, great. Can you name them? And if they work for Marriott, they might be able to name all 32. But then comes the interesting question that they're not expecting. I say, can you define them? And that's where there's a lot of pause. And these are people who actually work there.
2: Well, I only have one brand and one <laughs> type of hotel, which actually makes my job easier. But also, uh, the understanding of the customer is that much greater of what uh, what my hotels are about.
1: Well, what are your and, hotels and this about? This
2: hotel is is typical because I mean, we're sitting here in a room where we we can see the Grand Place. We're just next door to the Grand Place. It's a very centrally located hotel. It's a hotel with a a lot of charm, an intimate feel. You have a sense of being in Brussels. Uh, uh, in uh, in this hotel. And, and there's a warm and friendly and welcoming atmosphere when you come into the hotel. A lot of the staff, of course, have been here, actually. They predate my time. Uh, Ricardo, who's the head concierge, has been here for 45 years. And he'll, he keeps on talking about retiring. And one of these days he will, but he's only still only 64. But
1: you're not going to let him retire, so, are you?
2: Well, I hope not. I, mean, I try, <laughs> keep trying to persuade him not to. But a lot of people in the hotel who've been with the hotel a long time, and actually they've all absorbed... Sort of a, a Rocco forty philosophy, um, because we want to we, we try and make our hotels very unpompous because a lot of luxury hotels tend to be uh, that way, uh, but still very professional and sort of sort of have a very friendly and open atmosphere with a, uh, with our guests and we, and we succeed. People always tell me actually that uh, anecdotally about about my hotels how friendly and nice. Uh, the Star Far,
1: but it also gets down to the design of the hotel. i 'm a firm believer, and tell me if you agree with this, that nobody who ever designs a hotel should ever be paid for their work until they 've been forced to spend at least three nights in the room they designed. <laughs> because I get so crazy about the lack of common sense in so much hotel design today. All I really want is good lighting, obviously the things that touch my body, the sheets, the shower head, all those things you want yes. that to be work. But I want connectivity. I want good lighting, uh, and I want the ability to control my environment. Um, so many designers give you mood lighting in the room, and that's all you get. And it puts me in a very bad mood because yeah. people don't change their lifestyle when they change their location. They, they want to read in their room. What a concept. They want to be able to think in their room. And if you've only got a 40-watt bulb in there with an on-off switch, you got a yeah. problem.
2: But I mean, there's a, a lot of this environmental stuff right. of course affects that because the, the light bulbs you're allowed to use now as such, they don't give off any light or the light the light they give off is of the wrong color. and uh, uh, and that's something we you know we have we have to struggle with as, exactly. as, as you know I actually you.
1: I actually know people who travel with their own light bulbs. I actually know business uh, travelers who take their own light bulbs with them because they can't work in the room. Yeah. I was staying at one hotel in Miami. I took one look at the room and I called down housekeeping. I said, "Can you please send up ten floor lamps <laughs> because I couldn't see." But we, um, we, we, you know, you you don't always get
2: it get it right, and and a lot of these older hotels have, uh, you know, you don't you're not building every every room isn't the same. Every room is different, right. so you have to take a slightly different approach to. But isn't Which it great it that every
1: room is is different? It is great that yeah, way.
2: Yeah, well, it, may, it gives a hotel a lot more character. Yeah, um, but. Um, and of course, my sister is involved in the well. Your the, sister designed this. in the design of, of, of most of our hotels. so We right. use outside designers, but she does a lot of the hotels directly herself. And in the, in the case of this hotel, she did she did that.
1: By the way, the light's fine.
2: Yeah, <laughs> and uh, it works. We've completely redone the, the, the hotel over the last uh, eighteen months. Actually, we've redone all the rooms, uh, and uh, so it's uh, it's in a very good place. This hotel.
1: Well, every hotel is in one form or another, in one stage or another of either renovation or restoration. It's just the, the cycle of the hotel. Yeah,
2: that's one of the terrible things about the hotel business. You've got to spend, <laughs> keep spending money on the hotels.
1: I hate when that happens. <laughs> but the bottom line is, if you know, if you have a good basic product to work with, it yeah. doesn't take much, yeah. much energy or, or commitment to figure it out. If you're sorry, if, you're... if you, if you know what you're doing, with to begin with, it doesn't take a whole lot of energy or commitment to figure out yeah. what you need to do to keep yes. it going.
2: Well, that's, uh, well that, uh, that's right. But, I mean, if you're doing major work in a hotel, of course, it's always,
1: it's always going to be disruptive. Uh, when you look at a hotel today, what is it? I'm going to ask you to take off your, your chairman hat for a second and put on your, your guest hat. When you walk into a hotel, what's the one thing, any hotel, doesn't have to be one of your hotels, what's the one thing that you look at and you go, okay, that's wrong?
2: Well, I mean, the thing I look at most is, you know, what sense of warmth and welcome is there in the hotel? You go into a hotel uh, sometimes and there's no one bothering with you. There's no one... uh, Some people are going through the motions you get to. There's only one person behind the reception desk with about five people waiting... Uh, there's no acknowledgement that you're there, it's, uh, and and so on, and and so you you want to go to a hotel and feel that you're that the staff are very pleased to see you and 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 you're welcome there. And and, it, and it's not con- contrived; it's real. Yeah, and it's and it's real, and that's uh, and we spend a lot of time and effort working on this with uh, with our staff because. Um, you, you, you really want to treat the guest as an individual. A luxury hotel is about the individuality of the guest. It's well, not a when, we back,
1: service. when we come back when we when we come back I want to talk to you about that definition of luxury yeah. and how that may have been changing over the years. We're talking with Sirocco Forte, the chairman of Rocco Forte Hotels we will be back right after this.
3: Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more.
0: Play It at play.it. Welcome back to the CBS Travel Hour with Peter Greenberg.
1: And welcome back to the CBS Radio Travel Hour. I'm Peter Greenberg, travel editor for CBS News. If you're just joining us, we've been talking with Sir Rocco Forte, the chairman of Rocco Forte Hotels. And when we last left off the six-letter word that people can't figure out how to define and they try it every day, luxury. So I'm going to give you a shot. How do you define luxury?
2: Well, I mean, defining luxury in general is very, is very difficult, but in, term, in, in in terms of uh, uh, of my hotels, I think luxury is about uh, giving um, seamless service to the guest and giving and anticipating the guest's needs and treating the guest as an individual. You, uh, it's not a supermarket, a luxury hotel. It's more like a bespoke tailor. So you have to uh, define the service according to the needs of the individual guests and the guest has to be made to feel uh, individual that's the most important part of, of service obviously a hotel has to be well appointed well fitted today people want bigger and bigger rooms and bigger and bigger bathrooms um, uh, the modern technology has to be has to be in, in, in the rooms but at the end of the day it's about the, the relationship you have with the people who, who are looking after you and it's important Uh, that the people looking after you can adapt uh, the
1: interaction they have with you according to your mood and your particular needs. You mentioned a buzzword for me, bathroom. I judge a hotel by the bathroom because you spend more waking hours in your hotel bathroom than any other room in the hotel. And if the bathroom works, guess what? Hotel works. And it's amazing to me how much time is not spent by most hotels in working on those bathrooms. Uh, The tubs are ornamental. They don't. Really, you look at it, you. Go, I can't take a bath in that. It's. It's. Why would you even put it in the room? But if you got a really great bathtub in the room, you yeah. you feel good. I'll tell you my story and, and see if it has any. And it goes back to a hotel that your family once ran, the Savoy. When I first checked into the Savoy, and it was at a time when you guys ran it, I walked in, I checked in, and I'm now walking to the room with the bellman. What I didn't realize, Sirocco, was that he was size literally sizing me up. And I get to the room. He puts the bags in. He leaves. Two minutes later, there's a knock on the door. It's housekeeping with my bathrobe. Now, they were very clever at the Savoy. They never put any sizes on the bathrobes. But he had sized me up. They they had five different sizes of bathrobes downstairs. I was was an extra large. You know what they brought me? I didn't know it. An extra, extra large. When I put that bathrobe on, I felt so thin. I felt wonderful about the—a family of five could have gotten in there with me It was the most amazing feeling, and what the Savoy figured out was that you never put a size on the bathrobe. One size does not fit all, and by doing that and personalizing it with that secret size, you know how many bathrobes they sold? I ended up buying five, and they would monogram those stuff because I came out of that, oh, my God, you'd live in it for weeks. I mean, that's the kind of stuff that that the big chain hotels— don't figure out, because yeah, they have Savoy, a
2: stand. W- Savoy doesn't do that anymore.
1: I know that. <laughs> it's not your hotel. But they don't. But they, when they did, oh my God, it was brilliant. You know.
2: I mean, I, I, was at a, I was at a, I shouldn't say this, I suppose. No, you should say it. Go ahead. I was, I was at a function at that hotel, and the waiter, and the waiter uh, uh, said to me after uh, serving, so serving the, putting the plate in front of me, said, enjoy. <laughs> uh, which is, obviously, is a very American, no English person never says in Joyce. So it's a very American the company that owned the hotel is American. And that's what they're training the staff to do, which is completely contrary to making the hotel feel part of the location
1: country in which it's in. The other pet peeve for me, and I, I'm assuming it's for you as well, is when you let technology take precedence over common sense. Um, the, the the larger hotels are are actually sending me Information all the time about how they're making great improvements at the hotel by putting kiosks in the lobby and I'm going really I really want to talk to somebody. I want to have a conversation with them. I mean it's sort of like the airlines putting kiosks yeah, at the I airport. Mean, I,
2: you know, I was in, I was in the, the US recently staying at five star hotels where they don't room you anymore. Uh, which, you know, which is, uh, so when you, when you, when you arrive, rooming is, you, when you arrive, you're taken up yeah. to your room by someone. So you, uh, you, know, you're just given the key and, and allowed to find I'd your I'd like room. to have that
1: happen in my personal life, too, so they can Hi. take me up, yeah. But the point <laughs> is they don't, right? They don't do it.
2: No, not not anymore. And I don't know what it is, whether it's, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a union thing or, uh, uh, in New York, but it's, it's, uh, gradually, gradually, all these things are, are, falling, are falling away. We're the only hotel in Brussels which actually retained a real, a real level of five-star service because Brussels has been through difficult times, various difficult times. Everybody's cut, cut back and cut down. We're one of the few hotels where we continue to, to give the, that, that level of service. Uh, and that's and that's very important. But the, uh, the people at the top of the company have to be people who understand hotel keeping, who know what a hotel is, what service means, and are not just uh, number number crunchers and you uh, see looking I, at the at the bottom line.
1: I, I go back to to looking at the airlines because the airlines have, based on this recent United Airlines situation, they really have to come to grips with one thing: Are they in the travel and hospitality business, or in the are they in the human cargo business? Because what the lessons that were learned yeah. by that terrible experience that was seen worldwide yeah. millions of times, um, I hope is not going to be copied by by the hotels. Because when the accountants are running the asylum, everybody goes crazy, yeah. because they're always worried about what it costs as opposed to what it's worth.
2: Yeah, well, it, 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 it is happening in hotels. It has happened. Or it has happened already, and uh, obviously that's what you can fight against. And with a niche, a niche. Company like mine, which is you know, I'm working now to to I'm on the expansion trail again, and we're we'll tending to double the size of the company over the next uh, next few years. But I will always retain uh, that approach. I'll never be so big that I can't take an individual approach to each each hotel. Well, because if you
1: don't if you don't manage your growth, you lose it.
2: Well, exactly. Yeah. yeah, and just expansion for the sake of it is not uh, is not the right answer.
1: Well, my my guess on this Marriott Starwood situation is that we talked about thirty two brands. I would say within a year there'll be about maybe twenty, because if they can't define their brand. How do you maintain? Yeah, but, but a lot, some of it, you know, they need more
2: brands because they've saturated the market with one brand. They've got to, <laughs> they need
1: another brand to, to keep going in that, in that same market. But it almost sounds like a bad Ponzi scheme because at a certain point you overbuild the community. You have too many rooms. Well, I
2: mean, that's that's always the issue with any, with you know, in in every city is is does does the does the pace of development uh, keep up with demand, or is it the other you know does it actually exceed demand so that you have periods of trough periods, which actually always happens because people tend to build new hotels at the same time
1: because everybody jumps on board at the same time. In the hotel business, you're somewhat in the unenviable position that if there are world events that happen beyond your control. You literally can't move your asset; it's there. It's there, yeah, right. And,
2: and you're dealing with the with the laws and regulations of the individual country that you're that you're in. So you know you're you're to some degree stuck with that. You can't I mean, really after nine
1: eleven. Uh, the only guys who did okay initially were the cruise industry because they could literally reposition their assets; they could sail them away. Yeah, and they ended up showing up in seventeen U.S. ports, cities that didn't even know they had ports. All of a sudden, had cruise ships based there, yeah. and it basically saved them. Whereas the occupancy levels yeah. at a lot of hotels around the world dropped significantly because yeah. people weren't traveling.
2: but yeah, well, I went through a very tough time at that at that stage. My sales, well, it was actually more the financial crash than that, actually. In 2008, was, yeah, yeah. Which created, uh, after two months, my sales had dropped by 40% compared to the year before.
1: Wow. Uh, and you're still sitting here today, so yes, you, you were yeah. able to recover. Yeah. <laughs> so my question is, anytime you have a situation like that, it could be Brexit, it could be the crash in 2008. It could be 9-11. It could be what's happening now with presidential orders about immigration and visas that people don't quite understand, but it sends fear out there. The travel industry only seems to have one tool at their disposal, and that's discounting. Uh, But that doesn't always work in the luxury products.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, the the trouble with discounting is that uh, that when the, the situation improves, it's very difficult to raise your rates again. And this hotel, we haven't over the last twelve months. Everybody else in Brussels discounted. We haven't. We haven't done that. We restricted
1: the the way you know, the way we've done that. We've kept our prices at a level. I always say that if Neiman Marcus discounts, that's when they go out of business.
2: Yeah, I mean, there's you know, there's always. I mean, there is always a seasonality to to hotels and so on. And obviously, you have a different price point at different times of the year. But, um, but but this,
1: radical discounts, no.
2: Yeah, is uh, is always is always a mistake actually, and and if you're if if you're just attracting customers because of price, then they're not your your real customers. They're not going to come back
1: to you when the prices are higher. And that's the interesting story that I want to share with you when we come back because last year American Airlines did a survey that was a wake up call for them and every other airline. And here's what they what they discovered. It was it was a surprise that eighty seven percent of their passengers. Only flew the airline once last year and only based on rate, not, product, not brand loyalty, not product loyalty, none of those things. When we come back, I want to talk to you about that. We're speaking with Sirocco Forti, the chairman of Rocco Forti Hotels, back right after this.
3: Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities, talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more.
0: Play it at play.it. Welcome back to the CBS Travel Hour with Peter Greenberg.
1: And welcome back to the CBS Radio Travel Hour. Peter Greenberg here talking with Sir Rocco Forte, the chairman of Rocco Forte Hotels. When we last left off, I told you about this survey that American Airlines did, and it was it was a shock to them because their customer was not loyal to them at all anymore. They were just loyal to the rate, which meant that they were losing that customer to other airlines just based on rate. And that's really the point you're making in terms of the hotel business.
2: Yes, and it's interesting. The airline industry, the the airlines get all the accolades now. The ones doing the opposite, which are uh, Etihad and Emirates and Middle East, the Middle East airlines, actually,
1: which are actually trying to give much better service. We we just did a story. In fact, we're still doing it. On two words that tend to be an oxymoron: airline food, right? I mean, really? Well, if you go back to the original days, you know, was, every comedian has always had a joke about airline food, and yet, if you take a look at the airlines that you just mentioned—Qatar, Etihad, Emirates, Singapore, uh, and a few others—Turkish uh, Airlines is another one. They've got chefs on board now. They're actually—I was on a flight one day on on Etihad, and they not only had a chef, they had a nanny. And, it, and all these flights leave the, the region, as you know, Sirocco, at like 1 o'clock in the morning. And I'm sitting there. All I want to do is go to sleep. I don't want to eat. And the chef is saying, is there anything I can make you? I said, no, I just want to go to sleep. And, and the nanny says, is there anything I can do for you? I said, no. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's a family show. But but fi- they were so insistent on doing something for me, I finally said to the chef, okay, here's what I want. I'd like a cup of hot chocolate. And to the nanny, I said, and I want a bedtime story. Huh. I got it. She read me Winnie the Pooh, and I had a hot chocolate. But the crazy part about that flight was when it came time for breakfast, he said, are you hungry now? I said, yeah. I said, what would you like? I said, well, do you have any eggs? He said, what kind? He said, what kind? I said, do you have like two eggs over easy or two eggs sunny side up? He said, sure. He said, would you like something else with it, like mushrooms? I said, sure. He said, what kind? I said, what do you got? He said, what do you want? I mean, like, I'm on a plane you know, because normally when they serve you eggs, on, a, on, a, on a, it basically could be substituted for the uh, flotation device in case the plane hits the water. It's so rock hard. Uh, so you're right. On certain airlines, they've gone full circle now and they've gone back to doing things yes. the right way. But you have to do the same thing in the hotel business.
2: Yeah, but I mean, I not think I haven't changed my way of doing things. I continue to work in ways of finding ways of actually improving the service I give to my customers, and it's all it's all dependent on actually how you train your staff and how you develop your uh, your people.
1: Um, because they're the, ones, they're the way they're the ones in front of the customer. And they're the ones delivering the service. But it's also learning from the mistakes of others. I mean, for example, if you're a fi- I, I found this happening now more and more in the U.S. and maybe you have too. You check into a five-star hotel in an international gateway city, and they don't have room service, and it's 10 o'clock at night, and the kitchen's closed. Really? Or or, or they, they have nothing, and it's like, or they close the health club at 10 o'clock at night. People are landing at 11 o'clock at night, and they really want to go in there and... Yeah. You know.
2: Well, I mean, yeah, but, I, you know, sometimes it's, it's, you know, it's labor laws, it's cost of actually delivering that, and then... Uh, In Some cities you can't get people won't pay the rate for for the for the level of for the level of service It's 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 not it's not that It's not that simple at the end of the day If you don't make a profit then you you can't stay in business So that has to be taken into account, but sometimes it's that emphasis is too is too strong and and costs a cut Which which shouldn't be
1: but you've got some pretty great hotels in some very diverse locations Uh, You and I did a show once at your hotel in St. Petersburg yeah, we also did a show in Berlin. We did, uh, we did. Although that wasn't at my hotel, unfortunately. It wasn't your hotel, but we had a good time talking. Yeah, but it, at your hotel in St. Petersburg, I would think, because it's an older Historia, building. Yes, yeah, it's what a great hotel! Nineteen ten. That, that, that staircase. Happened. I remember yeah. that staircase. Yeah. Yeah. Where are you looking? and what markets are you thinking are attractive to you versus markets that you think you're saturated?
2: Well, I'm obviously. Um, um, I'm looking, I'm looking across Europe and also I'd like to be in the States because 35% of my business comes out of the United States and I'm not represented in the States and I should be. So I'm looking very hard at New York now. I'm looking at Miami also. Um, but uh, in Italy, I'm going to do a hell of a lot in Italy. Well, you already have a hotel. I have three hotels yeah. in Italy. I'm doing a second hotel in Rome now. Well, you have the De the, the De Roussi in Rome. And we're going to do, there's a hotel called the De La Ville, which is at top of the Spanish Steps.
1: I know that which hotel.
2: Will, which will open next, at the end of next year. Yeah. It's completely being re, redone Going from 192 rooms to 100 100 rooms.
1: And that's see, you're expanding the size of the rooms.
2: Um, then um, Italy is, a you know, fantastic tourist destination. The best, the best in the world. So I'm looking to really have complete coverage of the whole Italian market. I'm trying to do get a couple of other hotels in Sicily. I want to do the Amalfi Coast, Puglia. Uh, Venice and Milan. He's I've unstoppable. Pro- I'm working on projects in all those cities. Uh, Where in Sicily,
1: moment. Tarmina or no? Um, uh,
2: Palermo and Syracuse.
1: Ah, I
2: tried to get a hotel in Sarumina, but unfortunately, I didn't succeed. Actually, <laughs> a, but a, a you had bankrupt, the right idea. A, a sort of a, a, a guy who's got so much debt, it's unbelievable. Bought it, uh, you know, and I, you know, jumped in and stopped me getting it actually. But,
1: and, he, and he was willing to overpay. Yeah. Right? I didn't have the money, actually. <laughs> you know, I know somebody like that. He's now our president, by the way. But that's another story. <laughs> you know, when he opened that hotel in Washington, D.C., he yeah. so overpaid for it that the people who were in competition with him, the guys at Hyatt, Hilton, and and uh, Marriott, yeah. one of those groups, I believe it was the Hilton, wrote a letter to the United States government saying, did you look at the deal you just made? Because, you know, his landlord is yeah. the United States government. It's the old post office. He yeah. said... This is a bankruptcy case waiting to happen. He cannot service the debt based on what he paid for this hotel. He'd have to charge $800 a night for the room. And he's not getting that rate. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. Because you have to understand, as you so well do, if the economics don't work, I don't care how great the service is, you can't stay in business. So, yeah. so your stroke of luck was you didn't get the hotel in Tarmina. <laughs> no, but I think uh, th- th- it's a, it's 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 disappointing,
2: but it's a sort of because comp- it, comp- it was uh, being sold in bankruptcy, and the Italian system is so is so complicated in these situations. It's almost impossible. There's no transparent, really transparent transaction. It's not the guy who may- offers the highest price that gets it. There's just a whole uh, you know, complicated. Basically, you, no, you got to know that, a guy who knows a guy who yeah, knows a guy. Yeah. So anyway, but so, they had so to borrow money at
1: 11.5% to pay for it. So we already know where that's going to go. You'll buy yeah. it from him. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> that's what's going to happen, right? Thank You'll you wait. Fingers crossed. Yeah. But Italy for you is a growth market.
2: Yeah, no, it's, it's Italy uh, in itself is as a tourist destination, a growth market. I mean, if you look at my hotels in Italy, 5% of my business comes from the Italian market. Rest comes from overseas. About nearly forty percent comes from the United States, uh, and for for the American uh, tourist uh, traveller, Italy is a sort of real hotspot. And, and it's
1: always you know, been high on the list.
2: And it's you know, and it has. It's it's not got a, um, a lot of quality hotels uh, through uh, th- throughout throughout the country. There's no there's no group you can go and stay in every city with, right. uh, which is what I'd like to become there. Uh, and what about France? France, uh, France is obviously Paris. If, you're, if you have uh, um, ambitions to be the European luxury hotelier, you, you won't have a hotel in Paris. But at the moment, Paris is a very difficult place. A lot of new hotels, it's difficult to find anything. And, and prices are still extremely high with um, property there, so it's quite difficult to put something together.
1: Where is the one place you're looking at that nobody else is looking? But that,
2: I wouldn't tell I wouldn't tell you if there was <laughs> such a place because <laughs> it might get other people looking looking
1: at it. Well, let's let's look at recent. But past. I mean, Sicily
2: yeah. is you know Sicily. I have a hotel, I have a big resort with Dura in the south of Sicily. Gulf uh, has uh, it's. At 550 acres, nearly two uh, two kilometres of coastline, so it's a sort of wonderful, wonderful place. But I'd like to have more hotels in Sicily because then I'd create, I'd help to create Sicily as a real destination. Because Sicily is is one of the most interesting places in the whole of Europe. It's got amazing history from the Etruscan, you know, the from the uh, uh, pre-Roman times, uh, the Greeks, the, uh, then the Romans. Um, the Phoenicians, the Greeks, the Romans, uh, then the Arabs, then the French, then the Spanish, all left their their trace there. And uh, the most wonderful Palermo, the center of Palermo is the most wonderful uh, city. And, there's, and for the upmarket tourists, there's nowhere really for them to stay. And they would go there. If um, if if the right hotels were there,
1: plus a the view of Mount Etna,
2: <laughs> Mount Etna. Well, that's why you have to go onto the east coast. Exactly. Taravina is a place where you see Mount, exactly. Mount Etna from. But but and you know, Sicily has the people are so friendly and welcoming there, and uh, yet it has you know it has thirty percent unemployment, fifty five percent youth unemployment. And it's sad because it's one of the you know most attractive tourist destinations in the, the whole of Europe. It has a long season, the weather's very good, uh, and this fantastic history.
1: I have an admission to make to you that every time I go to Sicily, I do the same thing. I spend $200 and buy 100 of these little red wooden Pinocchios that they sell on the streets, uh-huh. and I put them in my desk drawer, and anybody who lies to me, I give them one. <laughs> uh-huh. I, I bring them right back from Sicily. Uh-huh. Another location you mentioned, Sicily, is Malta. I think Malta... It, it, it needs some, some new hotels.
2: Yeah, but Malta is a much is a different sort of island. It's much smaller. Yeah. It's a much smaller island. I mean, it, Sic- Sicily has a population of over three and a half million, so it's a big, it's a big, uh, it's a big place, and it takes three hours to drive from one side of it to the, to the other. Malta, you get uh, in half an hour, you go from one end to the other. So it's a different. Well, you could actually place. do
1: a Sirocco Forte Godfather tour. Of Sicily,
2: Godfather to Of
1: course, right. the entire Italian mob. You can just do it from one hotel to the other and talk about the history. Have, have Francis Ford Coppola yeah, narrate yes, it. You're in I, it. Unfortunately, I've got a few other things to do. <laughs> <laughs> well, Sir Rocco, thank you again for joining us. We really appreciate it. More on the CBS Radio Travel Hour right after this.
3: A new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it.
0: Welcome back to the CBS Travel Hour with Peter Greenberg.
1: And welcome back to the CBS Radio Travel Hour. I'm Peter Greenberg, travel editor for CBS News. We're talking with leaders on this program today. Uh, First up was Rocco Forte, the legendary hotelier uh, who uh, has hotels all around the world, all five-star And uh, we spoke to him in Brussels. Next up, the CEO of AirAsia, an airline many of you may not have heard about, but you will. Uh, He's making great inroads in the continent, but coming to the U.S. soon. In fact, uh, later this year, he's going to be flying from Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia, where the airline is based, to Honolulu. And the fare, get ready, $149. And that's just for starters. Please welcome the CEO of AirAsia, Tony Fernandez.
4: Hey, Peter, good to be here.
1: The CEO. Uh, you know, when we talk about the words, and it's a word that you hear all the time, disruptor. Disruptor Airlines. It doesn't necessarily mean you're trying to destroy anything. It's just you're upsetting the normal process uh, in terms of routes, pricing, uh, aircraft utilization. I mean, we go down the whole list. Um and you know, we look at Norwegian Air Shuttle. We see how they're playing the game. We see airlines like Wow. We see airlines, the British Airways, have just done a new one, announced a new one called Level. I mean, the, the the market's getting crowded now with people trying to copy maybe something you've been doing for quite a while.
4: Yeah, I mean, I think I've always said that um, airline is try to do too much. You know, if you look at the Singapore Airlines playing their first class, business class, premium economy, and economy. This hotel here is a five-star hotel, and it focuses on this five-star market. Uh, Rolls-Royce would focus on its premium of the market. So airlines have tried to do too much. And I think what you're going to see now as you get more um, AirAsia Xs, Norwegians, et cetera, is those traditional full-service carriers will move up the value chain. And more and more low-cost carriers will come in to take... The traditional economy end of the business,
1: although the traditional history of low cost carriers is, at least in the United States, they were either undercapitalized or there was predatory pricing, where the big airlines defined mm. a successful airline that, by who could lose money longer. Yes, and and then the, the low cost guys went out of business.
4: Yeah, well, I mean, I think the low cost industry is here to stay, uh, certainly from the short haul model. Whether that's going to happen in the long haul model is 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 to be seen. We've been doing this for nine years now, and you're still we're, here. We're still here. We're public. We've got two airlines in Thailand and Malaysia. There's AirAsia, uh, AirAsia Air X, X and Thai AirAsia X. Yeah. So we believe that um, there is a market. Uh, we and what's changing as well, Peter, is aircraft. We're now getting aircraft that suits this kind of model much better. The seven eight seven nine, the three fifty, the three fifty dash and the three thirty neo. These are perfect aircraft, which we never had. Ten years ago, you
1: inherited stuff. You just had to fly.
4: Correct, and they were made for different types of customers. Right. We're now getting uh, op- airline manufacturers, well, predominantly Boeing and, and Airbus, that are having variants that suit this kind of long haul, low cost model.
1: Well, let's talk about long haul, low cost because I go back to the days of Freddie Laker. Yeah, um, and well, Freddie he Laker, was he was
4: my he was my inspirator. I used to stand there, you and Richard Branson. Yeah, I was, uh, and I named my first long haul plane after Sir Freddie Laker. And in fact I, I received a, a message, an email from Sir Freddie Laker and I was like, Hey, I thought he's passed away. He and it was Sir Freddie Laker it was Freddie Laker Junior <laughs> uh, who was very kind enough to give me the key to his first, uh, the first tri-star that Freddie Laker had, the L1011. Yeah, and uh, I used to, I used to stand at Heathrow Airport and be, you know, as a young, I was a plane spotter. I'm proud to admit it. Uh, car park. M- me too. Park, car park five. I know exactly and, where you were standing uh, yeah. too. And uh, looking back at the hotels across the runway. Correct. And then I'd go down to the check-in, and I was amazed at people flying to New York for fifty-nine dollars. Which was still a lot of money then, but a lot less than what was being charged, and $99 on, on Skybus and Skytrain, etc. So, um, th- and they were put out of business by collusion. You know, that's when, when Monopoly's act came in. So the model works. The model's there. It's been done for a long, long time. And when
1: Laker was put out of business by collusion, he actually won the law case, but after he was already out of business.
4: Yeah, correct. Um, but, but of I course, I,
1: he, had the, he had the very famous quote that Richard Branson likes to say, you want to be a millionaire? Start with a billion dollars yeah, and open an airline, yeah, you'll correct. become a
4: millionaire. Yeah. In my case, I never had a billion. So, <laughs> so you're in better shape. <laughs> so I was in better shape.
1: <laughs> but with the airline that you're running, I mean, you're doing long haul, low cost, Right. But you're now starting. We're start-
4: predominantly doing medium haul. Right. If you look at most of our routes, are six, seven, eight hours. Now we've got the kit, we will start looking at 10 hours and, uh, and a bit more than that.
1: Right. But now you're looking at Koala on Puerto Honolulu.
4: Yes. But we're going via Japan. Right. Uh, so it's not a direct flight. We couldn't do it direct. But, uh, you know, we, we won't be long before we're doing Los Angeles, San Francisco. And uh, I'd like to do uh, New York from Europe. Um, America needs to start getting connected to asia it needs to be on a mass transport i'm not going to sound like miss world and say i want to make the world a better place you and, just did and a smaller world <laughs> <laughs> but i'm saying i'm not trying to sound like a which i know i am um, You'd have but, to speak a little higher but uh, but americans need to come out to this part of the world more and we've got to make it more affordable so um, that's something that we want to do
1: you talk about going to new york from europe Right now, the words fifth freedom" are interesting to me. Yeah, Uh, I had to go from Sao Paulo to Buenos Aires, and I flew Turkish Air. And people looked at me like I was crazy. I said, "No, that's the way you want to do it." You know, there are so many different flights you can do that people are are realizing now that are angering a lot of U.S. carriers. By the way, like the New York to Milan route on Emirates. I mean, Emirates is. uh, I mean, the the U.S. carriers are beside themselves that Emirates is flying that route, and yet that's a route you want.
4: Yeah, I mean, I think U.S. (laughs) carriers have to adapt, and I think can they. I don't know. I don't know them enough. But uh, what I'm trying to say is I don't think where people are talking about Trump and protectionism and stuff, I don't think that's the way the American uh, government will go. I think they want to create jobs. They want to create more tourism jobs. And uh, they've got to be more liberal. So I'm, I'm a positive advocate that we're not going to go backwards in, uh, in America.
1: All right, so I have to ask the, the, the crazy question, and that is, if you're flying from KL to Honolulu, and I've seen fares quoted at $149, how do you do that?
4: Wow, we'll need a lot longer than a 20-minute t- show. know that. <laughs> a a, it's show. a dark science. Uh, so so it's, uh, it's a lot of things. But if I could say one thing that I think we've done very well is this culture. Um, you can tell a pilot how to fly. You can tell a cabin crew how to, how to behave in a certain way. You can tell Audrey how to book a hotel. Uh, but if they don't want to do it, they won't do it. What we've been very successful in, we have 20,000 staff. We don't have a single union. We're a fantastic family culture where everyone collaborates very well, and we take an enormous amount of cost out of the business. The efficiency in AirAsia is far, far greater than any airline, and that's predominantly driven by the way people are motivated uh, it, to it, drive cost down.
1: Is it also part of the Southwest model that you're only flying one basic type of plane? Because you're not now, but you uh,
4: were. Well, on— On the long-haul model, we have one type of plane. On the short-haul model, we have one type of plane. So, yes, it is. But I, you know, it's a whole heap of things that we do. But I think the biggest thing is our culture, really.
1: And can you turn planes faster?
4: Yes. 100%. I mean, another thing, if you take a a long-haul traditional carrier... They would. Leave. They take two hours to turn a plane. Well, more, and sometimes more than that, yeah. because they're waiting for their business customers who won't get up at a god-unearthly time to get that flight.
1: But your customers will.
4: But, correct. So as soon as we land, even if we land at eleven o'clock at night, we'll take mm-hmm. off at two in the morning, and uh, our customers will be there.
1: Now, for those people who don't know this term, something that Tony knows very well, it's called aircraft utilization.
4: Yeah. Right. You, you work, all pay. For, you all pay roughly the same price. You use it more, your cost per seat is going to go down.
1: Right, and you're going to keep that plane in the air because you're not making money on the ground. Correct. I go back to Freddie Laker for a second. Mm. When Freddie Laker started to get in trouble is when he put a first-class section on the plane. Mm. When MGM Grand got into trouble is when they put a coach section on the plane. So if you're going to have a brand, you have to really well define it and then keep to that brand. Mm. So you have how many classes on your plane?
4: On AirAsia, one. One. On AirAsia X, one. But we have a different seat. We give you an option of getting a nicer seat for 12 of those seats.
1: Okay, but just 12? Yeah. Right, so people are begging for
4: those seats. Well, not begging, because we charge him a lot more. We charge <laughs> him more to sake. beg.
1: Yeah. <laughs> but you're not you're not anticipating ever changing that mix.
4: No. And I mean, the, there was a, a management who talk, talked about making a business class. They're not there anymore. You've got to stay focused. And it comes back to what I said right at the beginning of the show, that airlines have to be focused. You know, that, they're, 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 you know. Looking after a first-class passenger and an economy passenger is a completely different product from training, from food, from check-in, and it just adds enormous amount of complexity and cost. So And sometimes confusion. Correct. And, and that's why we just believe in we'll look after one type of consumer.
1: Now, when you take a look at your route system, right, most Americans don't know you because you don't fly there yet, right? But you're about to. I mean, Honolulu may be turning into a hub Thanks to airlines
4: like yours. Uh, I, I believe it will. I believe the Internet has been a great liberator in terms of transparency affairs, showing what's happening, etc. I believe a lot of people will fly to Honolulu, catch us to come down to Asia. And at some point, at some point when we get to the West Coast of America or the East Coast of America, other you know other people living in different cities will get to New York or get to L.A. or get to San Francisco or get to Hon- uh, Honolulu to get down to South Asia. And vice versa. People will fly with us to Honolulu, and that wasn't their final destination, and they'd catch a Hawaiian or JetBlue or whoever to go to different parts of America. Is
1: that the same philosophy, let's say, as a Jetstar going from Australia to Honolulu?
4: Uh, I think so. I think so, but I mean, obviously, you're a lot further away from Asia when you arrive in Australia. Well, great. Yeah, but <laughs> I'm just talking about
1: using Honolulu as a hub. Yes. Yeah. So when you look at that, are you looking to go from KL to Japan to Honolulu to L.A.?
4: Um, I think more likely we would go Japan direct to L.A.
1: Now, the Japanese, as you know, are really tough on granting those rights.
4: Well, less and less and less and less and less because they're trying to open up their country as well. Japan, 15 years ago and Japan now, completely different. They were quite a closed Society in terms of tourism, right. now they're quite open.
1: And you don't necessarily have to go out of Narita, you go to Haneda.
4: Correct. Well, yeah. Well, we don't necessarily go out of either, actually. Because said, they're both pretty expensive. Could, yeah. But you could. We could. And I think the beauty of, you know, the world has changed a lot. Liberalization is here. And that's why I don't think America will take a step back. I think they will continue liberalizing more, whatever the three big carriers want.
1: Well, that gets back to the, to the argument that the U.S. carriers have with the Gulf carriers. And that is, is that really an issue? Because at the end of the day, the audience is going to vote with their wallet.
4: Absolutely. And I, I, and I think at the end of the day, um, if they're better, they're better. It's <laughs> as simple as that. If they're getting huge amounts of protection or huge amounts of bailouts and subsidies, then I think the American Airlines have a case. But, but you don't believe they are? I don't believe Emirates is, for sure. I, I can't speak for the others.
1: But it's interesting that Emirates not only flies Milan to New York, right? Just that's a turnaround flight for them. They're not even continuing on to Dubai. Yeah. Same thing with Athens now. Yeah. Athens to New York on a service that U.S. carriers are not doing all year
4: round. Yeah. So I mean, and that's good, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, it, it, look... Emirates that's how, by the way, that's how JetBlue started. Yeah. They picked out lo- locations that weren't being served, yeah.
1: and then all the major carriers got mad at them. Well, wait a minute. You weren't, th- you weren't going there.
4: Exactly. So I'm, a, I'm an old-fashioned free marketeer, right? Emirates flies <laughs> four 380s to Malaysia and has fifth freedom to fly on to Australia. Not in, once in my 15 years have I ever complained. We either got to shape up, be better, or get out of the market. So we've got to innovate. And I think people... How do you like,
1: innovate against Emirates?
4: Oh, very easy. I don't have an A380, which costs a bloody fortune. <laughs> 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 I don't have to worry about... Oh, sorry. First class in the front. And My first uh, bleep on the show.
1: Yeah. Unbelievable. I love it. You dropped the bomb.
4: I did. Yeah. So... Uh, you know, you made me dress up, by the way, which is making me this is radio hard, which him. is making me very uh, <laughs> uncomfortable. I'm normally in my jeans and t-shirts. So oh, right, you don't have I an slipped. A380 for starters. Yeah, we don't have an A380. We don't have the complexity of first class. We go back to your earlier part of your interview that everything is uh, everything is um, simple, and so our cost structure is much lower.
1: And if it's simple, this gets back down to to, to basic. Don't promise what you can't deliver.
4: Absolutely. 100%.
1: I think where American Airlines, U.S. Airlines get into trouble yeah. is their marketing makes you think you're going to have yeah. theater in the sky with right. hot and cold running wine. and It doesn't work yeah. that way.
4: Look, my very, very first marketing conference to my team was don't overpromise, and we just focus on one or two messages.
1: We've been talking with Tony Fernandez, the CEO of X, based in Kuala Lumpur, but coming to a city in the U.S. near you soon. Up next... Another legend and another leader in Bangkok, owning more than, I can't even tell you how many hotels, but the key here is, in the capital of service, otherwise known as Thailand, he is the de facto king. His name, Bill Heinecke, up right after this.
3: Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play It at play.it.
0: Welcome back to the CBS Travel Hour with Peter Greenberg. And
1: welcome back to CBS Radio Travel Hour. I'm Peter Greenberg, the travel editor for CBS News. In this episode, we're talking with leaders, Sirocco Forte and uh, Tony Fernandez, the CEO of AirAsia, and my next guest, who shares one thing in common with Bill Gates, they both didn't go to college or stay there long. Uh, but in in Asia, he is Mr. Asia to me. He's been here since, well, he's been running his company since 1967, but he actually moved here in 1952, and he's my age. So go figure, Mr. Bill Heineke. How are you, sir?
5: Thank you. Nice to be here.
1: But when I talk about Mr. Asia, let's, let's put it straight. You started a company in 1967 called Minor Holdings. Mm-hmm. There's nothing minor about it
5: anymore, Bill. Well, that's right. But uh, because I started it as a minor, it seemed like the most appropriate thing to call the company.
1: You started at what, 17?
5: At 17, yeah. Wow. So.
1: And expanded into hotels, food. real estate.
5: Food is a big part of our food, business. Food, retail, yeah. everything. Yeah. Right.
1: How many companies, I mean, now don't brag to me now, mm. but, but how many companies do you actually run or control right now? Uh,
5: that would be hard to calculate, but I think we calculate it more by we have about 155 hotels. Uh, We have about 2,000-plus restaurants. Uh, We have uh, 65,000 employees. But who's counting? Yeah, but who's (laughs) counting? But uh, those are easier to do than to figure out how many corporate entities or structures. And, uh, you know, we've got six brands within our hotel hospitality business. Uh, We've got uh, 400 points of sale in our retail business. So that's probably the most effective measure I can give you, and we do about $2 billion in sales.
1: But what I think is most impressive is that you've kept it here in Thailand.
5: We are headquartered in Thailand, but 50% of our business and, uh, and our activities are outside of Thailand.
1: But it never would have happened without the Thai culture or without, without the Thai spirit.
5: Yes, that's right, because I think we, we have adopted very much a Thai culture to the company. We've, got sort of, we've, we've merged a Western and Thai culture into the company, and I think it's very, we're very unique from that point of view.
1: Now, you moved here from Virginia when you were a baby.
5: I moved to Japan uh, when I was very young. That's right. About three years old.
1: And then came to Thailand?
5: And came to Thailand in 1963. Finished school here. Graduated here in 67. But
1: not college.
5: Not college.
1: uh. Yeah, you're proof positive you don't need the degree.
5: That's right. At least in your case. (laughs) Thank you.
1: But what about, you know... Being in Thailand, I remember when I first came here, and I came here in 78, so Mm. I'm a a latecomer Mm. compared to you. When I first came here in 78, I got on the airplane, got out the airport, I didn't know anybody. I was coming to visit a friend who who was here, but that was it. And people were so nice to me, I kept on thinking, well, they must be meeting some other guy, because why are they being so nice to me? And then I realized it had nothing to do with me. Mm. It's who they are.
5: That's correct.
1: And they have defined and continue to refine service Mm. in such a way that It's very easy for me, and I'm speaking from personal experience, and I'm going to guess it's also, in your case, to get spoiled.
5: Mm, Absolutely. You know, Thailand is, uh, I I like to think that we're we're probably not world class at making shoes or even automobiles. uh, But what Thailand is world class at is hospitality. You know, we've got some of the greatest hotels that operate here in uh, Thailand and, and very successfully. It's a very competitive market. But the unique Thai hospitality that they that uh, are, is afforded really allows all these hotels to deliver an exceptional experience.
1: And this is the point I was trying to make with a friend of mine earlier today. I was sitting and this person who's never been to Bangkok before until now, I said, you're going to find this hard to believe because I come from a U.S. mentality of consumer reporting. But I have to look long and hard, and I haven't found one yet, to find a bad hotel in Thailand at any price point.
5: That's correct. I think uh, this is the best travel bargain in the world. You know, we've got our hotels, our uh, deluxe hotels are far lower than Singapore or Hong Kong, and yet they usually command many more tourists. Uh, You know, if you exclude the Chinese market, which is practically on our doorstep. So, uh, So really, they've got to go a little bit further. But Thailand is uh, an incredible place to, uh, to visit, to be, to experience. And it's got everything from beaches to mountains to, uh, to culture.
1: Well, let's digress for a second, because you mentioned the Chinese market. You know, 130 million Chinese are going to travel this year. That's that great. is staggering.
5: And it's scary, because uh, one of the first and easiest places for them to go to is, uh, is ASEAN. And we're getting an awful lot of them.
1: But in the old days, in the old days, probably maybe seven years ago, right? Mm-hmm. In the old days, the, the typical Chinese traveler was traveling in a group. They were very timid. They were following some guy with a flag like the old Japanese mm-hmm. model. That's not the case anymore. Not
5: anymore at all. In the Maldives, if you take the Maldives, we have many, uh, Chinese are one of our biggest customers in the Maldives. And yet, that's one of our most expensive markets, you know, with our, for our hotels there. And they're paying it. They're coming on, uh, on first-class seats. Money is not a problem. Money is not a problem. And not, not, they don't have to be part of a tour group.
1: I was at the, uh, the, well, it's not new anymore, about three years ago at the new terminal at Charles de Gaulle, and they said, we really want to show you our duty-free store. I'm like, really? Why? I said, come on, I'm going to show you something. So I went in and I said, okay, it looks nice. It's nothing exciting. I said, no, look over there. I said, what's that? And It was like this glass-enclosed, locked room, and it was all wine. And I said, people come to the airport to buy wine? And they said, go inside. So they open the door for me. I go inside. The cheapest bottle of wine was $120, Mm. right? The cheapest. And who goes to the airport to buy one? Mm. I found out, Mm. the Chinese. But they weren't just buying wine. They were buying the wineries, Mm. right? So you're seeing that here.
5: Yes, and you're seeing people buying uh, 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 barrels of wine now. That's the newest way is you buy a barrel and then you, you have it bottled whenever you want. Uh, so it's like sort of have like a cigar bar. where You have your cigars in the humidor, and they keep exactly. it exactly. So, uh, but you know the other thing that wait,
1: wait, is, wait hold it. Do you have a barrel?
5: No, but <laughs> 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 well, we have a lot, a lot of connections with a lot of wineries. But, uh, but no, I, I, I think the important thing is that you're you're seeing people uh, that are traveling, and, and you know when the cost of wine. Let's let's look at Thailand. Wine is uh, here is taxed at some extraordinary thing. So everybody brings their own. You know, you'll know, you see most uh, wine menus here in Thailand apologizing for the price of the wine because it's it's extraordinarily taxed. We're trying very hard to lobby the government to uh, reduce tax because it's mainly being consumed by, by tourists.
1: But let's talk about Thailand in a very specific way. Uh, their king was the longest reigning monarch in the history of the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for most Thais and for most of the world, the only king they've ever known in Thailand. Right. He recently passed away. Uh, and... And that creates a one-year period of mourning. How has that impacted tourism to Thailand?
5: Well, unfortunately, it's impacted tourism because a lot of people are worried about coming to a country that's mourning. But in actual fact, uh, what you you come and see is, is the respect that a country has for a monarch. Uh, and, uh, you know, you still get into the palace. You could still pay your respects. Everything's there, but it's really to observe uh, the, uh, uh, some of the unique uh, festivities. We're going to have the, uh, uh, the cremation, I think, for the king on October 28th. Uh, this year, and that's going to be a spectacle that will never, will probably never be seen. You know, will only be seen once in my lifetime, and may never be seen again, uh, because uh, this is this is unique. You know, Thailand has uh, had numerous kings over the years. I think I, I counted 58 at one time over the last couple of thousand years. You got to remember, this is a very deep culture that goes back. You know, America is sort of relatively new with 250 years or whatever they they claim to be. But Thailand has a has a, a culture of commerce and business and and uh, uh, the monarchy that goes back two thousand years. So then you're talking about a really rich history.
1: And if you want to talk about a rich heritage, there's one other aspect about this country that I always find astounding. And please correct me if I'm wrong, but I've always, I've been always told that it has never been successfully invaded.
5: That's correct. It's never been colonized. Uh, so uh, so as a result, there's perhaps a greater acceptance of foreigners here than you would have in, say, Hong Kong or Singapore, which were both colonized, or Malaysia, or Vietnam. How do you
1: then export this incredible history and heritage of service elsewhere?
5: I think, one, you want to keep that culture alive. As I said, you know, Thailand is famous for its, its, its world-class when it comes to hospitality. So all through the world now, our hotels, so if they're branded on they're very indigenous to wherever they are. If they're in the Middle East, they're very Emirati. If they're in the Maldives, they're very Maldivian. However, very often all of our Anantaras share one thing: they'll very often have a a spa, which will have many of the Thai uh, therapies, which are famous all over the world. We'll very often have, if we don't have a Thai restaurant, which is one of the most popular foods anywhere in the world today, is Thai food, then we'll at least have Thai items on the menu. So those are some of the things that keep us unique and and allow us to be indigenous, but yet. Still still bring a bit of Thai character, not to mention that we have many ex- in, in exceptional staff from around the world that, that work in our hotels from Thailand. Not uh, to
1: mention that you've got a couple of pizza places.
5: Absolutely. that's, but how, that's many food pizza, how
1: many pizza places do you have?
5: I think we're, we've passed 400. <laughs> uh. Do they deliver? Uh, they do. We're the biggest delivery system in uh, certainly in Thailand and probably much of ASEAN. Unreal. Hmm.
1: So where do you go from here?
5: Uh, just trying to uh, keep improving upon what we're doing.
1: Is there one thing in in the travel industry, take take your experience out of it, but is there one thing in the travel industry you want to see changed?
5: One thing that I'd like to see changed in the uh, travel industry. Uh, you
1: can go airlines, hotels, cruise lines, you name mm, it.
5: You know, I guess to me it's the, uh, we were talking about it earlier today, but personalization. You know, to me, that's the one thing uh, that uh, that I always thought you got when you went to a branded hotel. But today, uh, the branded you know, there's so many of them, it's it's like going to McDonald's. So it's only the smaller uh, unique the boutique, or even the boutique, boutique type hotels or smaller boutique uh, management companies that have a smaller number of hotels, which can pay much more attention to the personalization of the experience for their guests and, and build that brand loyalty towards the brand. You know, how do you build brand loyalty if you're talking about, you know, 30,000 hotels? You know.
1: Well, that brings you're my, about a my next point market. up, which, which I hope I'm not insulting any of your brands, but... I asked this question the other day and it was a group of like 3,000 people in the audience and they weren't industry people, they were consumers. And I said, I want a show of hands and be honest with me, how many of you get excited about staying at a Sheridan? Somebody raise your hand. Nobody raised their hand. And I said, what about a Marriott? Nobody raised their hand. I said, so let me guess why you're there. You're either there because of their frequent stay program or you're there because it's company travel policy or you're there because it's attached to a convention center and you have to stay there because that's where it is. So, in that situation, hotels that have that many hotels, I mean, brands that have, the, have a problem because you have a built-in core audience that doesn't want to stay there.
5: Absolutely. Absolutely.
1: So, in this current merger situation where you have Marriott you know, doing this huge purchase of Starwood, and they have something between 30 and 32 brands, I was at a, at a conference recently and I said to the people at Marriott, how many brands do you have? They said, 32. I said, can you name them? They couldn't. I said, okay. One guy raised his hand. I mean, he could name them all. I said, great. Now, can you define them? Now, we had a problem. (laughs) So, have we reached the point of diminishing returns?
5: I think so. You know, uh, many people said, you know, weren't we petrified our shareholders as as well as uh, our key executives when when Marriott and Starwood merged? But that's probably the best thing could ever happen to a small company like ours. Because because we now have a number of people that are looking at us because they don't want to be branded as one of those uh, uh, huge brands uh, which are you know lumped together and, and very much dependent on on a uh, anybody who's got a card and they're, they're generally getting the cheapest rates.
1: So, now there's a six letter word that people have difficulty defining. Uh, it's sort of like the Supreme Court trying to define pornography, and their ru- their ruling was. Well, we can't define it, but we know it when we see it, right? And the sixth letter word is luxury. How do you define luxury?
5: Uh. Good question, but you know, to me again, I come back to uh, uh, certainly this personalization. You know, if I can go to a hotel that knows me well, knows what I want to drink, knows what I the the kind of pillows I want, I don't have to specify. They know it; it's in the guest history. They it's exchanged between each of the general managers. I want to know that I'm welcomed whenever I go to any hotel.
1: Well, it's not just in the guest history; it's in the culture. Exactly, right? So that okay. So you you want to be known and received. You want to be identified, recognized, Mm -hmm. right? Recognition is a big deal. That's right. But then you mentioned it personalization. Um, The thing that drives me nuts, I'll tell you what drives me Mm -hmm. nuts, is when a hotel tells you they've made progress by putting kiosks in the lobby. (laughs) And I go, I'm not staying there anymore (laughs) because I want to have a conversation. Mm -hmm. I learn so much about everything when I actually ask questions and and engage in finding common ground. Mm -hmm. You have any kiosks in your hotels?
5: No, but what we do have, and we have did very successfully recently, is Zuma is one of the top restaurants in the world today. And in Phuket, uh, we opened a Zuma pop-up restaurant instead of the all-day dining. You know, who wants to dine in an all-day dining? But you open up a pop-up Zuma, and suddenly we had a business that was, it blew away everything that we'd been doing within the hotel itself. And so what we, people we, are looking for, yeah. you know, for breakfast, yeah, people will go wherever, they're, wherever breakfast is being served. But when it comes to going out for dinner, they really want to go somewhere special. They don't want to go to the coffee shop. Right. They don't want to go to the all-day dining. But we just took the restaurant. It's a beautiful restaurant. We converted it to Bizuma. We brought in the chef and the menus and the special uh, ingredients. And the business, you know, was just un- unbelievable. But, you know, we're very strong in the food and beverage business. So so that's very important within our hotels. So we're not into putting up kiosks. But, you know, bringing in a, a name-brand restaurant for, for a couple of months as a pop-up to uh, test the market, reward our guests, especially during peak season. That they now have a restaurant that they're, they're familiar with in London or in New York or, or wherever. That was a big hit.
1: Okay. from somebody For somebody who's been in Thailand for 50 years. Since you, well, since you started the company, <laughs> yeah. right? 67. No. Uh, is there a hotel outside of, of, of here? Is there a hotel in the United States that you actually like?
5: I have to tell you honestly, I, I visit the, the, the Far East is so great. There's so many wonderful places to visit. The States is my least frequented place. You know, even though we have family there and what have you, but, you know, you tell me where you had the last great experience in the United States, and I'll tell you, you know, I've had great experiences, you know, almost every week somewhere in Asia.
1: So you're not leaving.
5: No, I'm not leaving.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I know. I, I think I'm going to stay with you now. Would you adopt me?
5: Yeah, absolutely. Peter, okay. anytime.
1: Okay. I, everybody just heard that. You know that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Bill Heinecke, the CEO of the Minor Group, and there's nothing minor about it. Thanks very much. That about does it. For this edition of the CBS Radio Travel Hour, I'm Peter Greenberg. We'll see you next time from somewhere else, somewhere around the world. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news,